All right, good morning, Grace. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And as you uh, turn there, I'm going to begin our time by reading from Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. So if you would listen as I read aloud. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom the men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Grace, this morning, there are countless sorrows represented in this parking lot. There are countless sorrows represented uh, amongst the people who are watching this service via live stream. It doesn't take uh, a whole lot for us to think back over the course of this past year and to imagine how uh, we might be a sorrowful people this morning. And that might be because of our own sin, because we're dealing with the consequences of our sin, or it might be because we live in this cursed and broken, fallen world. But as I consider some of your sorrows that I'm aware of, or as I consider some of my own sorrows, it's just almost too much. It's almost too much to take. Grace, we have a lot to lament for this morning. A lot to cry out to God for and say, this is not the way that it's supposed to be, O oh Lord. And I'm grateful that he hears that cry. But we just read a passage of scripture that identifies the coming Messiah, Jesus, as the man of sorrows. One who is intimately acquainted with grief, with sadness, with suffering, with pain, with hurt. And today, uh, we want to consider that man of sorrows. This morning, we're beginning a five-week sermon series that'll lead us through Palm Sunday. And it's gonna be a, a sort of extended passion, ser, uh, passion sermon series, or maybe even a Lenten sermon series. And it's a, a time where we're going to hone in on, focus in on Jesus as this man of sorrows. And what we want you to recognize is that because Jesus is a man of sorrows, he gets our sorrow. He gets our suffering. He gets our grief and he gets it at an intimate level. He gets it at its core. He understands it better than we can even understand it ourselves. And because of this and because he is a man of sorrows, he's uniquely able to deal with the source of our sorrow. And he's uniquely able to redeem our sorrows redeeming them to the uttermost 
saving us from our sin and giving us life. So today we're gonna start at the very beginning of Jesus's life. And we're gonna look at the incarnation. We're gonna look at God being made flesh, Jesus being born as a man, as this little tiny baby. And in the weeks to come, uh, and so today as we consider that, we'll consider the incarnation, but we'll also consider suffering and Jesus being a man of sorrows more generally. It's sort of an umbrella uh, uh, time in the word this morning. And in the weeks to come, we're gonna consider some, some unique and particular instances of Jesus' sufferings, uh, some particular ways that he is a man of sorrows. And, and as we go to God in his word this morning and consider the incarnation and consider generally that Jesus suffered, the, this is uh, an application light sermon uh, our time in the Word this morning is not so much going to be, uh, here are five things to do in light of what we're, what we're looking at and considering. This is more of a sermon that's about gazing at Jesus, beholding him, and even recognizing that one of the key ways that we can apply the Word is simply by thinking deeply and well about God. I think as we do that this morning, as we think about Jesus and consider who he is and what he's done on our behalf, I think we will be blessed. We will be built up and we'll be better equipped to deal with our own sorrows and sufferings and to live and persevere by grace. And so uh, this morning we're gonna focus primarily on Ephesians 2, verses five through 11, paying special attention to verse seven. And we're gonna see two main points and then a concluding point. So first, Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Second, in Christ, God stooped and suffered. And then I will keep the final point to myself uh, to build a little bit of tension. So Philippians 2, uh, Kenny started this off just a moment ago. I'm gonna read the whole passage. So Philippians 2, verses five through 11. If you have your Bibles open, please follow along with me. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today as those who are needy uh, those who have many sorrows, and so we approach you in the name of the man of sorrows, asking that you would fill us up, that you would bless us, that you would cause us uh, to hope and endure in Jesus. And so, Lord, would you please speak to us today? Carry your word by your spirit and put it in our hearts. We offer you this time as an act of worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so again, uh, first thing we want to look at this morning in the Word is that Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. There is a beautiful logic to this passage that we just read here in Philippians 2. And if we want to understand the glory that comes at the end of the passage, then we need to understand who we're looking at when we look at Jesus. Put another way, why is Jesus something worth focusing on? What makes Jesus suffering any different than any of our sufferings? If we want to get the glory of Jesus' suffering and his humiliation, then we need to understand who Jesus is and who he has always been. And so that takes us to this very important phrase here in Philippians 2. Jesus was the one who was in the form of God. The form of God. A massively important phrase. A phrase that we could spend a whole lot of time on. Just quickly, this is not saying that Jesus is like God. It's not saying that that Jesus resembles God. To be in the form of God is to be equal with God. It's a shorthand way of saying that Jesus is God. And so before this passage tells us what Jesus did, it tells us who he is and who he was. It tells us his true nature. Jesus is and always has been God. And so before Jesus became man, Before he clothed himself in humanity, he was God. We need to get this in our heads, fixed in our heads. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. As one pastor put it, uh, Jesus isn't the reflection of God's glory like the moon reflects the sun. No, Jesus possesses his own glory. He radiates the glory of God and displays the glory of God to the entire world and to the entire cosmos. John 1 identifies Jesus as the one who was with God and was God before the foundations of the world. And so where was Jesus when the earth was being made? Well, he was right there with the the Father and with the Spirit and all things were being made through him. John 17, 5, in Jesus' high uh, priestly prayer, he prays to God the Father and he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory, with the glory that I had, that I had with you before the world existed. And so where was Jesus before his birth? Before the incarnation he was there with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. As, as Fred Sanders says, in the happy land of the Trinity, existing uh, forever, possessing his own glory, for he is God, perfectly happy, perfectly sufficient in himself. In the Bible, we get these little glimpses of who Jesus really is. And we can have our theological ducks in a row and we can still miss the reality of who Jesus is and let that bear on our lives. And I know for me, the the Passion of the Christ, uh, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out at a really formative time in my walk with the Lord. 
And so if I try to visualize Jesus, I pretty much always visualize him as Jim Caviezel from The Passion of the Christ. And there's a scene in that movie uh, toward the beginning, obviously, where um, Jesus is sort of playfully interacting with this family and with his mom. And, and I kind of imagine that, that trivial moment where he's just laughing and enjoying life and it gets stuck in my head. And that's how I tend to imagine Jesus oftentimes. And so I can conceptualize of a Jesus who's just a guy, just a humble carpenter who's sort of an idealized version of myself, somebody who came to be just like I came to be. Yes, he's better. Yes, he's great. But at the end of the day, he's a lot like me. And a lot of my problems come from trying to listen to him and to obey him as if he is just like me, instructing me on the way and the pathway of life. But then we get these passages. And these passages, they tell us exactly who Jesus truly is. He is God. He is the one through whom all things are made and all things are held together. He's the one who displays God and mediates God's glory, possesses all of the attributes of God. He's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. We can go on and on. He's the one who possesses his own glory. Think of the Mount of Transfiguration. And you, you, you in the story, have Jesus go up to the top of a mountain with some of his friends. And when he's there, he, uh, we have Mose, Moses and Elijah appear. And in this moment, Jesus meets again with Moses and Elijah on a different mountain than he has before. And what happens? For the briefest of moments, we get a glimpse of Jesus' unveiled glory. For the briefest of moments, we get to see who Jesus is. And what happens? His face shines. It shines to the point where his friends are terrified, where they fall down on their face, where they start to reflect his glory even. It's overwhelming how glorious and awesome this Jesus is. In Jesus, we see the one who possesses infinite majesty, strength, and purity in himself. In Jesus, we see the prince of heaven we see the one who commanded the unceasing worship and adulation of the angels and the full heavenly host, Jesus. You know, the church throughout history has tried to make sense of who Jesus is. And they've tried to protect against heresy. And the best, most succinct line they could come up with to get this right comes from the Nicene Creed. Who is Jesus? He is God of God. Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. We have to have this firmly fixed in our minds and firmly rooted in our hearts. You know, um, last year for my birthday, um, so a little over a year ago, my mom bought me a nice smartwatch. And uh, it's amazing what those smartwatches can do. Um, tell you all sorts of things about your health. They can tell you all sorts of uh, interesting information. They can 
basically pair up with your phones. They're, they're really uh, wonderful pieces of tech. And because of that, they're not very cheap. It's a wonderful gift. Well, uh, my son James apparently thought so as well. And so one day, uh, I wasn't paying very close attention. He went and found my smartwatch, and he grabbed it by the strap. And I, and I see him from across the room, and he's holding it up in the air. And I think, no. And so I call out to him, buddy, come here, bring that to me, be very careful. And I start to walk to him and he starts to walk to me. He listens to me, praise the Lord. And so he starts to walk towards me and he's holding this smartwatch up in, his, uh, up in the air and, and he's not a very good walker at that point. This is over a year ago. Uh, and, and what does my little buddy do? He walks and we have a lip in our living room and he trips over the lip and his momentum comes down and his hand comes down like this and just smacks it up against the ground, shattering the smartwatch. Um, so you can tell I don't have a, a watch on right now this morning. Grace, let us not treat Jesus and his divinity so haphazardly. Let us not be lulled to sleep by the whirling chaos around us or by the cares of this world so that we see Jesus as something less than the glorious son of God. Let's not forget the treasure that we possess in Christ. Let us be sure to remember that Jesus is no mere man, but he is the God man, fully God in every way, every time we look at him in the scriptures, every time we pray to him, every time he mediates his love to us, he is God. God of God. Light of light. Very God of very God. And this is crucial, not only because Jesus is worthy of right thinking about him and the sort of worship and honor that would come from remembering his true identity, that he is the self-existent, self-sufficient radiance of the glory of God. But as we remember this, we, we remember that he then becomes one who's uniquely able to help us to suffer and to suffer well with hope. Now this could be the case because Jesus, while he is the God-man, he's also the God-man. As the song says that we sang earlier, Jesus stepped down into darkness. And that changes everything. So point two, in Christ, God stooped and he suffered. In Christ, God stooped and he suffered. Philippians 2.6, it tells us that Jesus was in the form of God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't see his divinity and his status as God as a thing to be taken advantage of, a thing to cling to, a thing to hold fast to. Rather, Jesus emptied himself. Jesus emptied himself. That's the phrase. This entire series can be summed up in that phrase. And here we see the most mysterious and most marvelous of miracles, the incarnation, God made flesh. Jesus emptied himself. Now you may be aware of this, maybe not, but this is a phrase that is ripe for abuse. Over the past century or so, 
Uh, many liberal theologians have uh, sought to, to change the, this phrasing and, and make it into something that it is not taking it to mean that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity, meaning that he ceased to become God. He rid himself of his divine attributes. But that's not what's going on here. The Bible clearly contradicts that sort of reading if we just read the Gospels. But uh, this passage also tells us what, what uh, Paul means when he says that Jesus emptied himself. We see that in verse 7. Uh, so negatively, Jesus emptied himself. Positively, what does that mean? Verse 7, Jesus took the form of a servant. And he was born in the likeness of, me, uh, likeness of men. No, Jesus doesn't cease to be God. He adds to himself humanity. He steps down into darkness and he becomes a real life man, a real life human. And so much can be said about this. We, can, we could spend an inordinate amount of time talking about this verse and these phrases and the beautiful contents of the passage and the application. But for our purposes today, it's important for us to see that when Jesus did this, he voluntarily limited himself. To use Hebrews language or, or Hark the Herald language, he veiled his pre-incarnate glory. Philippians 2 goes on to say that in this emptying, Jesus humbled himself and he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Now, um, if we could step back for a second and, and try to think in some theological categories. Um, Jesus emptying himself and becoming man, his incarnation, uh, this begins uh, what theologians will, will call Jesus' humiliation. His humiliation. And so uh, there are things called states, the states of Christ. And in his incarnation, uh, Jesus enters into his humiliation. Now, if you imagine a U, okay? So we have a U here. Uh, on one end of the U, we have Jesus enter into the U at his incarnation. And if you were to imagine uh, Jesus' life, this entire downswing to the bottom of the U is Jesus' life. And, and what we believe as Christians and what theologians will say is, is that Jesus' entire life contained here is his humiliation. This is his suffering. And so Jesus... Uh, in, here in Philippians 2, he enters into the you. He enters into a life of su suffering. He enters into a life of humiliation. And, and this will only continue and intensify until he gets down here to the bottom of the you. Can you imagine what's at the bottom of the you? The cross. And so what we, what we say then, uh, if we're thinking in theological terms, is that Jesus' entire life is a life of suffering a life of humiliation. As the, the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, uh, what do you confess when you say that he suffered during all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in his body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. His entire life was a life of suffering. And so to sum this up, what Christians believe is that every breath Jesus breathed in his life was a breath of humiliation. 
Every experience was an experience of suffering. Not only that, but this suffering only intensified at the end of his life and culminated as he died upon the cross. So you might say, you might be like me and you imagine the passion of the Christ and you imagine Jesus playfully uh, batting water at his mom or, or joking with his friends. You might imagine the good times, the experiences of fellowship and joy. There, there's plenty, to, uh, plenty instances of Jesus being happy in this life. And I don't mean to demean those at all, but... We have to qualify these experiences. Jesus is emptying himself with that phrase that Jesus existed in the form of God. Jesus wasn't a mere man experiencing those things. No, he was God in flesh. So as I've been thinking through this idea, uh, my mind has gone to the movie Cinderella Man. Brandon and I watched this movie last week on my birthday uh, maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you aren't. Came out 2005, I think. Uh, but it's a movie about a boxer, uh, a man named James Braddock. And uh, it's a great movie. I love it. I'd recommend it. And in this movie, uh, Braddock is, is a really gifted, really wonderful boxer. And life is good. And he's on his way to becoming one of the all-time greats. He's revered in his Irish New Jersey community. Uh, he's seen as the man. He's got a great family. Life is good, and he's on top. But then uh, the Great Depression hits. The Great Depression hits, and uh, quickly Braddock gets hurt in the boxing ring. But because of the Great Depression, because it's a hard season, nobody's doing well, he doesn't have time to take time off and to physically heal. So he just has to keep getting in the ring. And because of that, he gets more and more hurt. And because he gets more and more hurt, his skills diminish. He ends up getting beat and beat and beat. And, and, and before too long, he gets beaten so badly that he's not allowed to box anymore. And, and, and this sort of begins his humiliation. For too long, uh, things go from bad to worse. And he's led to be one of those people who's begging others for money so that he could feed his family and keep them warm at night. And all of this kind of culminates for him in this really haunting scene where, where finally he is so beaten down, he's so broken that he goes to this government assistance facility. He's gonna go and he's gonna ask for money from the government. And he goes and, and everybody notices him and they're looking at him and they're sort of whispering and he's sitting there just absolutely dejected because he's there. He's holding his hat in his hand. He's shaking. He's looking at the ground and he works his way up this line to the teller at the front and this lady, she looks at him and goes, I never thought I'd see you here, Jim. And it's just a, an amazing and heart-wrenching scene hits hard. Why, though? Why? I mean, we've all been in tough spots. We've all had to ask for help. There were lots of other people in the room with him. Why was it so big of a deal that James Braddock, Jim Braddock, was in the line? Why would the teller say, I never thought I'd see you here, Jim, but not to anybody else? 
Well, you see, he was once powerful. He was once accomplished. He was once on top, but now he's been reduced to to this different kind of way of living. You see, it's one thing to be a jester, to be a clown. I mean, I never want to be a jester or a clown, but you got to do what you got to do sometimes. It's an entirely different thing for a king to become a clown, though. And that's the idea here. I don't want to push analogies too far here because we're talking about one of the most mysterious things that we can imagine. But in this, we see uh, the, the craziness of seeking to measure the distance that the infinite and glorious Son of God had to stoop by becoming man. You know, Isaiah 53 says that there was nothing in Jesus' appearance that we should desire him. There's nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Isn't that astounding? Isn't that just a, a crazy thought? The one through whom all beautiful things were made and sustained is an average looking, forgettable, meh kind of looking person. You know, Eric Thomas told me this past week that there have been actual studies done that have concluded that Jesus was probably about 5'3". Five, 5'3". Three. Five, three. Our Savior was a 5'3", average, forgettable-looking Jewish man. Nothing captivating about him. Nothing about him that would make us give him a second glance. Nothing that would draw us to him. Can you imagine the all-knowing God having to learn obedience or, or even having to learn how to use the bathroom or how to learn a trade or to endure in that trade. Can you imagine the all-sufficient sustainer of the universe getting tired and having to take a nap? Here's how three of the church's great thinkers put it. I think they could put it quite a bit better than me. Thomas Watson said that man should be made in God's image is a wonder. But that God should be made in man's image is a greater wonder, that the ancient of days would be born, that he who thunders in heaven should cry in the cradle. Spurgeon said, infinite and yet infant, eternal and yet born of a woman, almighty and yet nursing at a woman's breast, supporting a universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms, heir of all things, and yet the carpenter's despised son. Lastly, Augustine, man's maker was made man that bread might be hungry the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired from the journey, that strength might be made weak, that life might die. In Christ, we have the infinite become finite. Grace, have you suffered? Have you been downcast? Have you been humiliated? Are you hurting and even grieving this morning? Because of the loss of loved ones. Because of financial strife or family strife. I know that that exists in this body. Are you grieving the loss of a year of experiences that you thought you were going to have that, that can no longer be obtained? 
And I mentioned this earlier, but I, I know enough about this group to know that there are serious sorrows represented in this parking lot. Mental health has been a, a massive concern over this past year. Cancer is growing and taking up real estate in some of your bodies. Some of you have lost loved ones or will soon lose loved ones. Miscarriage. Today, we have the opportunity to gaze at Jesus, to look at him. We have the opportunity to study him, to fix our eyes on him. And what do we do when we see this Jesus? We see a man of sorrows, one who is acquainted with grief, one who understands our sorrows. He gets them at a deeper and more intimate level than you and I ever could or understand because no one has experienced suffering in this life like Jesus. We don't look at a mere man who has experienced suffering and humiliation, do we? No, we look at the God-man. We look at the one who suffered, yes. But we look at the one who suffered, so that he might be able to do something ultimately and finally about our suffering. We look at the one who can turn our sorrow to delight. And so that's our final point we want to close with this morning. In Christ, exaltation comes through humiliation. Exaltation comes through humiliation. Jesus humbled himself. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient. His entire life was a life of perfect obedience where he willfully and joyfully lived under the law, fulfilling the law on our behalf. And as he did so, he suffered. He worked his way down that U-curve. He suffered and he suffered and he experiences things that were below his station, things that he did not deserve to experience that only intensified as he worked his way down that curve. Why did Jesus, the great God of glory, stoop down into darkness? Why did the infinite become finite for us? For us so that God could pour out his wrath on his son, the culmination of Christ's suffering, so that he could pour his wrath out on his son in our place so that we would not have to experience that white-hot fury, so that we, rather than experiencing the righteous and just wrath of God, could experience forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, eternal life, abundant life. Jesus reached the end of that U-curve and he died. Cursed death upon a tree. But the thing is, no one takes his life. No, he lays it down. And because he lays it down, he uniquely has the authority to take it back up again. And he did. He rose triumphantly from the grave. And that's where Philippians 2 takes us. Jesus wasn't merely humiliated, 
But because he was obedient and because he was humbled to the point of death, even on a death on a cross, he is now the highly exalted one. Because of his humility and his obedience, God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth to the praise of God the Father. You know, in John 3, Jesus says that no one ascends into heaven except for the one who descends from heaven, the Son of Man. Well, who has descended from heaven? Jesus. And who ascends to heaven? Jesus. You know, Romans 6 says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we suffer with Christ, if we are united together with him in his suffering and in his sorrow and in his humiliation, then we will rise with him too. If we suffer with him in his humiliation, then we will be united together with him in his exaltation. Jesus is our forerunner. And in him, we are buried. We die. But in him, we experience resurrected life, newness of life, glorious life, glory forever. And so through his humiliation, Jesus is making it so that our exaltation as children of God can be possible. And so grace Very simply, I want to encourage you, whether you are in a season of plenty, in a season of riches, or in a season of sorrow, season of lack, look to Jesus, the one who understands our sorrows and the one who can do something about them today and eternally, the one who gives us life, the one who forgives our sins the one who is making all the sad things come untrue. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your son Jesus, the man of sorrows, that in him uh, we can be fully known and in him we can find refuge in our time of need, help, In him, we can find grace upon grace upon grace. Lord, I pray that you would bless us today as we consider your glorious gospel and as we consider the incarnation and its place in the gospel that you sent your son in love to be limited and to be veiled, to experience something that was not worthy of him so that we could live and so that Jesus could receive maximum glory. Father, I pray that you would bless us as we consider this and cause us to suffer and to experience sorrow well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.